This morning, our sermon text is coming from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 to 17. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecution and suffering that happened to me at Edia, at Inconia, and at Lazra, which persecution I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted to you have been acquainted with the secret writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I'm sure that uh, most of us are very familiar with the YouTube channel. The YouTube channel is incredible for those who like to do things themselves. You can just type in how to do whatever, and there's somebody that has done something that you're looking to do or something similar to it, whether it's plumbing or electrical. It really, it really helps those who might be scared or perhaps they haven't even done it before. They don't know how to do it. And you can type in how to and watch someone do it. It's just amazing how an example, you know, that, that you're watching them, you're hearing them explain to you how to do it. I mean, when I was growing up, it was the 13 pages of directions that you get from some technical writer who has no idea what they're doing. And you're trying to put things together. And yet to see it, to hear it is just, it's, it's really quite amazing. It, it's um. It really helps us to do those things that we can't do. You even get to see their failures. You know, they say, don't do this. This is what everybody does. And so they even help guide you away from these failures. Well, you know, if you've been here long enough, you've been hearing through 2 Timothy. I mean, if you, if you haven't picked up anything, uh, you'd at least pick up that Paul was an incredible example to Timothy. Remember, now, the scene we have here is Paul knows he's dying, right? He says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. So he knows that. He knows that Timothy is going to have to keep fighting the false teaching and the kind of the empty religion, the persecutions, the desertions from faith. He knows that. And so he's trying to prepare Timothy uh, for that day when he won't be there. And so he's encouraging Timothy to endure. He wants Timothy to finish well. So Paul, after saying that the time of his departure has come, he's already being poured out as a drink offering. Then he says that I have fought the fight, I've run the race, I've kept the faith. He says, and there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, 
which is going to be given to me and all those who long for his appearing. So he's telling Timothy, I I want to finish well. I'm going to finish well, and I want you to follow my path. So he gives Timothy two ways of endurance. Now, we've been looking at the guy climbing the hill forever now, and I love that thing. So how do we endure? Well, we're enduring by two things. One, he says, look back and remember my example. So Paul is going to hold himself out as an example to follow. He's going to say, look, recall, remember all that I have done with you and and said to you and exampled before you. So Paul's like the quintessential YouTube channel. He's trying to say, here, you've watched what I've done. But then secondly, he says, don't just look back at what I've done. Continue on in your study of the word, the same word that has changed me to finish well. So you must not just live on experiences of others, as important as they are, but you have to yourself continue in the word, to be a student of the word, so that you can endure well. So just two points to this sermon. Um, So first, remember or recall, look with me at verses 10 and 11. He says, you, however, have followed my teachings, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to be at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. So uh, Paul's just saying, remember, right? I I mean, remember you. But notice he says, you, however. And verses 10 and verse 14 are the exact same words, Greek words. I don't know why they translate them differently, but he's saying, but you. So instead of the false teachers that were slipping off of from my teaching, he says, but you, you follow my teaching. You know, Paul's, uh, Timothy's had the advantage of this example. He's been with Timothy for probably 15 years now. He says, but you, you follow my example. Now, to follow an example is not just to parrot someone, uh, but it's to be conformed. It's to be trained. So he's saying, you've seen my life. You've heard my teachings. You've watched me suffer. So follow in the same way. This is kind of the old style of learning. It's live with somebody and walk with them and see how they do life. And then you begin to emulate what they do, how they respond, how they think, how they process. That's what he's really saying here. Specifically, though, he says, follow my teaching. It's Paul that declared the apostolic doctrine. It's Paul who gave the gospel. And Timothy had heard that over and over. The false teachers, uh, they were satisfying itching ears. They were preaching an easy grace. They were preaching a triumphalistic kind of faith, you know, kind of victory and prosperity and health. And Paul said, no, follow my teaching, the teaching of the gospel, Uh, The teaching that means you will suffer if you want to live a godly life. Now, listen, I've known plenty of people who start out orthodox. They have a good understanding of the scriptures. But time and culture and suffering, and they begin to just kind of stray from what was orthodox, and they move into an unorthodox position. They move away from the, and he's saying, no, no, no. If you want to endure, you have to follow what I'm saying. Uh, Follow it until the end. It's really important. It reminds you of the importance of biblical preaching and teaching to keep you on that teaching of Paul. But he also says, follow my conduct. In other words, Timothy, you've seen my way of life. Now, we get to see each other on Sunday morning. 
But when you live with someone, you really get to see what they're like. And he's saying, follow my conduct, my way of life. He says, follow my, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. You know, he was able to see Paul's life both, both kind of public, but also private. Paul's life, it like exemplified the gospel. Paul's life kind of adorned the gospel. You see the virtues of patience and love and steadfastness. He said, you've seen this. You've seen the Spirit of God apply the Word of God in a way that I could live before you as I have. Follow the way I've lived. You begin to see the incredible role of being a parent. You know, they get to see the way you live. But then he says, also follow my sufferings. Now, Timothy knew what Paul suffered, but notice he mentions these three towns, Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. Uh, probably mentioned those, uh, severe persecution, thrown out of town, stoned, but they were around Timothy's hometown. So Timothy would have heard about this man who suffered so greatly and yet endured. Why do you endure through suffering if the goal that you're enduring toward isn't worth it? You know what it is. And so he said, you've seen my suffering. Follow in that. And again, these false teachers were triumphalists. They were health and wealth gospels. They were kind of the Superman, you know, uh, quicker than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, kind of could leap over tall buildings in a single bound. You won't have to suffer. You won't have to endure those things. If you really know Jesus, then your life is going to be easy, smooth, and you'll have your best life now. And he says, no, you've seen me suffer. You've seen me suffer. It's part of the faith. You've seen it in me. And so you see him calling him. But, but he does say, and you've seen the Lord rescue me. But I want to remind you, friends, that, that the rescue that he received was usually through the trial. It wasn't removal from the trial. It, it, it's t- the grace of God persevered Paul. And the deliverance would often come after the trial. Even here in our text, Paul's languishing in a prison. He knows that God's rescue this time will come through death. Have you thought about rescue that way? That the ultimate rescue is deliverance from the flesh, from sin, from shame, and taken to God himself. That's what he's looking for. The Lord has rescued me, and he will rescue me from them all. So Paul is simply telling Timothy, if you want to endure, you need an example. I'm the example. Recall, remember, what I've taught you, how I've lived before you, how I've suffered for you. And now you can see, look with me at 12 and 13, because he kind of turns it into a principle that goes beyond Paul's own life. In 12 and 13, he says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life. So you see him kind of broaden his application here. He says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. He's simply giving a principle here. He's saying, Timothy, listen, this isn't just me. I'm not just the lightning rod for Christianity. I'm just not the one. But but all who want to live a godly life will be persecuted. I think what he's saying here is that if you want to live a godly life, I don't mean by that moral, although it includes that. I mean by that that your priorities... And your positions uh, and your values are from God, upholding Christ. 
And if you do that, if you really live a Christ-centered, God-honoring life, beyond just morality, but putting Christ first, if you do that in a culture and in a world that is antithetical to God's values, then you will face some degree of persecution. It may not be that hands are laid on you as they were on Paul, but it may be social, ostracizing, shunning, mockery, exclusion from groups. It may be financial, losing jobs because of your ethic for the glory of Christ or holding fast to the truth of male and female. You may suffer those kinds of things. It's, uh, it's kind of given to us as a promise here. Jesus said the same thing. If they hated me, they'll hate you. Paul told, the, in Acts 14, he told the church, he says, he encouraged them to continue in the faith in Acts 14, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. This is given to us as a promise. So, so if you go to the Christian bookstore and you buy one of those box of scriptural promises, you probably won't find this one. But, but it, it is a promise, the same. It's preparing us. Now, you may be thinking, well, why haven't I suffered? Well, I do think we live in a unique time in this country and in this period of time in which we exist. So I, I do think that there's a, a measure uh, that we haven't gone through that many in the world currently are and many across time have. But we do want to ask ourselves, you know, have we lived with a religion that is formed but denied its power? Or, or have we lived out faith in a very privatized way? Or in kind of a Christian subculture ghetto? You know, John Stott says that there are those who are in Christ, but they're not in the world, and they avoid suffering by removal. There are those who profess Christ and who are in the world, and they avoid suffering by compromise. But there are those who are in Christ and in the world, and for them, collision is inevitable. I, we don't seek this out. I'm not encouraging that. But as our age presses forward, I think the more graciously vocal we are about the hope that we have in Christ, it will bring about some degree of collision. So, so here what we have here is Paul encouraging Timothy to endure through whatever circumstances he has in life by following his teaching, by following his conduct and way of life, and by following even in his suffering. So friends, the takeaway for just this first part of the sermon is, I think it's fairly clear, is that we need examples. We need people to follow. We need other people in our lives that have strong teaching. They have a good understanding of the gospel that we can profit from and learn from. Not just, not just leadership, but member to member. Uh, we want to have people that have lives that are open enough that we can see the fruit born in their life. We want to follow those people who have lived over the long haul and their lives are godly. We want to follow those people who have gone through the fires of suffering and have remained joyful in the gospel. We need these people. We need to find these people and speak to them about their life. And, and, and in a way, follow what they've done. Ask them how they've done it. And then begin to follow that. 
Not just the members, but the leadership should offer that same. You know, if you think about in Hebrews 13, 7, he says, remember your leaders, consider the outcome of their life, and imitate their faith. That's an impressive text. It's kind of burdensome. You know, Carol and I often look at our own lives and for the suffering that the Lord has apportioned to us, whether it be through cancer, loss of family, or even church conflict, we see God being gracious in how he apportions trials to us, and they're for our ultimate good. But I think, too, they're for you. You get to watch us, not just me, but the leaders. You get to, you get to watch the elders over this past year. You get to watch us suffer so that you see us trusting, not perfectly, not stoically either, but maybe perseveringly watching us go through things, you can see the greatness and the glory of God evidenced in this imperfect continuing to follow Jesus, even in the midst of suffering. We all need these examples. And not just leaders, but member to member, we have many saints here that you could tap into to ask about how they've suffered well. We have many older saints who have been faithful through the years and their lives are littered with the same suffering and yet they endure and they're here Sunday after Sunday worshiping God. So we need these examples. Friends, don't let pride prevent you from submitting to them and asking, how did you get through this time? What scriptures were important to you? You know, I remember, you know, most kids, when you try to teach them a sport, they, they just want the ball, whether it's teaching them to dribble or throw a football and they just, well, let me do it. I'm like, well, well, can I show you how to do it? No, 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 I know how to do it. It's like, have you ever done it? No, but I just want to try it. Okay, you know, okay, that's fine. It, you know, we don't want the example sometimes, but we need these examples. I mean, I've profited so greatly from the Christian biographies that I have read. That's why I give to you each year a biographical sermon. And they've always involved people who suffered, like Elizabeth Elliot. Goodness gracious, you know, consider the suffering and the steadfastness in her life. We look at her and we can, we can follow that model. I think about the first, one of the first classes I took in seminary was church history. Josh had just... Uh, gave a class through the first five centuries of the church. And this is one of the men who we call him a church father, Polycarp. He was a bishop of Smyrna. He was a disciple of John. And he was one that was ultimately, uh, for his faith, he was burned at the stake. Uh, but, but we have the dialogue between him and the proconsul who was uh, reigning over this case. And the proconsul said to him, uh, take the oath and I'll let you go. Just revile Christ. In other words, commit your allegiance to Caesar. They were polytheists, so you could believe in Christ. You just had to believe in Caesar and all these others. But there is no believing in many other gods when you're a Christian. It's Christ and him alone. And so he said um, to revile Christ, Polycarp said, For 80 and 6 years I have been his servant and he has done me no wrong. How can I now blaspheme my king who saved me? Now this is metal. This is strong metal. So the proconsul threatened him with, with lions and fire. Lions and fire, to be eaten by lions or to be burned at the stake. 
And Polycarp says, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour at most. You must not know about the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you wasting time? Kill me in whatever way you see fit. That's, that's strong. I remember reading that thinking, that's the kind of faith I want to have. That's the kind of endurance I want to have. So, so these examples are essential. Not just the examples of saints in the past, but even the saints of today. When I was in seminary, I was trained by a, uh, a pastor. It, just a short time, it was an internship that we had, that we had to do as part of our seminary education. His wife was dying of a late-stage cancer, breast cancer, and he would get up week after week, and we'd hear the updates of her health, or really the declension of her health, and he would get up and preach the sovereign goodness of God week after week. Carol and I would leave thinking, how does he hold the two together? God being great and sovereign and good, and, and, and his, his wife suffering as she was. But, but you saw the Spirit of God in him, what, the Word working out through his life. So friends, we need these kinds of examples. We need them. But we also need to be them. Many of us, we need to be these examples. We need to have our lives on display enough that they can see our teaching. They can see the gospel that we hold. We need to be vulnerable and transparent enough that they can see us handle prosperity and difficulties, that they can see us handle seasons of want and seasons of need or plenty. We need to be vulnerable, vulnerable enough for them to see our suffering, that we have to give word to it and what we're clinging to. Now, remember, being an example and I, I think I understand where many of you are going. Uh, being an example is not being perfect. You think, well, I can't. I got to get my life cleaned up before I could ever say with Paul, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's what he said in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Can you say that? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Remember Paul's saying this, but Paul's already said in 1 Timothy, he's the chief of all sinners, so he's not claiming perfection. He doesn't have it all down. He's the one that said, I haven't attained the goal I'm pressing on. I haven't gotten there yet. You know, so you see Paul in full recognition. The reason we can say, imitate me as I imitate Christ is because we're displaying all of our life, right? Both the, the successes we have by faith and the struggles that we have in faith. So it, kind of exposing ourselves to one another, we become an example. We, we, you know, we, we learn both from good examples and bad examples. You know that Timothy would have seen Paul blow his top. You would have known that Paul or Timothy would have seen uh, Paul at points of discouragement. Don't make Paul some haloed-headed man. He was a chief of all sinners, he said. So you, you know that he understood his brokenness, trusting in the grace of God to save. So, so parents, can we say to our children, follow me as I follow Christ? Uh, if you've been in this church 10 years, you've heard 500 sermons, if you've been regular. You've heard hundreds of hours of doctrine and teaching and scripture. Should you not be able to say, follow me as I follow Christ? Join with me in this pilgrimage. Let's walk together in this. Uh, it won't be pretty all the time, uh, but hopefully it will be redemptive. And if we can't say, 
imitate me as I imitate Christ. Why? Well, what would prevent that after all these years? So we both need to have examples, and we need to be examples for one another. Friends, this is why he sends the apostles out two by two. This is why he gathers us together as a church. This is why we see ourselves as pilgrims. I mean, friends, nothing you own, nothing you have will last except what you have in Christ. So, so we need examples. That's Paul's point here. But secondly, he says, don't just look back and remember what I've done, but also look forward, continue in the word of God that has so provided me the strength to be an example. Look with me at 14 to 17. He says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God, the woman of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. So Paul's just drawing his mind again back and saying, hey, remember, not just my example, right? You had a mother, you had a grandmother. Uh, they both were impacted by the scriptures. Uh, you've learned from them the nature of the power of the word in helping us to endure. But, but notice Paul speak to the, the purpose of scriptures here. Because he references, uh, he references these folks, the mother and the grandmother and Paul. He said, you've learned the scriptures from them. And these scriptures are able to make you wise unto salvation. Do you see that? These scriptures, so the, the purpose of scriptures are to make you wise unto salvation. Isn't that interesting? Do you look at the Bible that way? Is that how you view the Bible? A lot of us see the Bible as kind of talking about how God made the world and kind of creational facts. There are some. Uh, many of us see the Bible as kind of a, a, an ethical book, right? It, it gives us an ethic to live in this world. Others look at the Bible and they see it kind of as providing a moral guidance. This is how you ought to live so that you're most successful in this life. And while the Bible may contain some of those things, do you see what he says here? He says, the scriptures are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So it seems the purpose of the Bible is to lead you to Christ so that you know this Messiah. Isn't that true? I mean, don't you just, doesn't that kind of ring with sense in your mind? I mean, you think about the Bible in the beginning, right? He creates the man and the woman. Here he says, be fruitful and multiply, you know, cause the earth to flourish. And of course, they, they sin and they're removed from the garden. And what's the first thing God does? He says, well, I'm going to provide a seed through the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. So the one who led you out of this life and out of the garden out of my presence, he will be crushed by one who comes to lead you back to him. And then the whole Bible really is speaking, and they're all longing for the seed, right? Abraham is told, hey, you're going to have a people, and you're going to have a seed, and the seed's going to be a blessing to the people. And then you have that same promise to Abraham. 
you know, the formation of a people through whom the Bible was Old Testament not is not about Israel. It is through Israel a seed will come, and this seed is going to be the son of David, and he will have a kingdom. And this seed in Isaiah is going to be a suffering servant. And he's going to suffer because he's going to bear our iniquities. And they're all longing. He's going to be born in, in Bethlehem, and he's going to be born of a virgin. So the whole Old Testament is just a big promise that this seed, the Savior, this deliverer, it will come. They're all longing for it, right? So the Old Testament is a promise made. The New Testament is a promise fulfilled. Now he comes. That's why Matthew introduces Jesus as the son of Abraham, the son of David. He's the seed. He's the one we've been waiting for. He's what the Bible's about. It's about Jesus Christ. And then, of course, we see in the Gospels his life and ministry, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And then we see in the New Testament, how now do we live in light of this Savior that has come? So the whole Bible is about Jesus. When you read the Old Testament, you're understanding it in its context. It's historical, grammatical context. And you look through it to see it's a picture that's why we're not looking for another temple. Uh, the temple was a foretaste of the one who would come and be a temple for us. So, so all, and Jesus said this very same thing in John 5. He says, you search the scriptures, he's speaking to the Pharisees, because you think that in them you have eternal life. They thought we have the scriptures, we have the directions, we need to follow them, and then we'll be saved. And he says, no, no. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. We're happy to come to God by following his instructions so we can make our way to him. But he says, that won't work. You refuse to come to me. That's salvation. That's what all the scriptures are about. He said the same thing to the foolish men. Isn't it amazing, these two disciples on the road from Emmaus? I don't want to be like inscripturated as a foolish man. He says, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So he took the pages of scriptures, the Old Testament, he says... Moses and all the prophets. So Moses would be the Pentateuch, the, oh, the first five books, and then all the prophets, and within that would be the writings of the, or poetry. And all of them, he said, they concern me. So do you see that for us to endure, we're plowing in the scriptures so we can know more of the worth and the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ? Is this the way you read the scriptures? It's not a book for direction, although direction is given to us. It's a book leading us to Jesus, that we would love him supremely more than anything in this world. So that when troubles and trials come, they will not be significant enough to dissuade us from following him. That's why Paul said, all my accomplishments, they're all lost. They're all dung. They're all rubbish. They're all excrement compared to the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. Is he that way to you? He might not be, and it may be because we haven't seen him so deeply in the scriptures. So Paul is encouraging Timothy, pour into the scriptures, and pour into the scriptures for the purposes of knowing and loving Christ. 
And we can find Christ because they're the very words of God. Notice what he says here. He doesn't just tell us what the scriptures do, but he tells us what they are. They're sacred writings. They have holy character to them. Why? Because they're the very words of God. See, Scripture, you know, many of you notice in 16 when he says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Some of your translations, like the NIV, I think, says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And so we often think that Scripture is simply that men got together and, and ping, the light bulb turned on. They were inspired with some outlandish thoughts about God. They wrote them down, they put them together, and boom, there's your Bible. They're inspired thoughts about God. That's not what he's saying. He's also not saying that these men got together, they wrote down, or whether they got together or not, they couldn't have, but, but these men wrote down these words, they were compiled together, and then God breathed into the words and made them alive. And that's what makes it the living word. Kind of like what, what God did with Abraham, or not Abraham, what God did with Adam, right? He took the dust, the dead dust, and he breathes life into it, and he becomes a living being. That's what they feel, some, that God breathed into the words of men and gave life to. I don't think it's that either. I think it's God breathed out. He exhaled his words into the minds of men that they would write the exact words and the exact thoughts that he would have. It's God breathing. Think about your breath on a cold winter morning and you breathe and you see it vaporize. It breathed into these men. It's the very words of God that we have. Augustine said, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. Peter says the same thing in his second letter. He says, know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. It is not the interpretation of men. And beginning with, oh, sorry, uh, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but man spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. Isn't that interesting? I mean, that the scriptures that we have that teach us about Jesus are God's very words about his very Son. And notice it says all scripture. Or it could be translated, every scripture. It's not just the words of Jesus. It's not just the New Testament. It's not just the moral law of the Old Testament. All scripture, every scripture, has been breathed out by God. Every scripture. Now, they may not all be equally important in the sense of its placement in the, in the canon. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, he says, what I passed on to you was of first importance, that Christ died according to the scriptures, he was buried, and he rose again according to the scriptures. So there are some scriptures, you know, particularly as you move towards the New Testament, that, that are kind of the bloom, if you will, of the seeds planted in the Old Testament. But here you see that these are the very Words of God. Do you see the Bible that way? When you read the Bible, do you, do you listen as if God himself were speaking to you? And, and not just, in, in, for those who say, well, I don't understand all these things. There are things difficult to understand, no doubt. But it's the things that we do understand that are usually the harder things to do. God is speaking to us. And what he's saying, Timothy, if you're going to endure. And friends, many of us feel like our culture is kind of having another revolution. And, and there is a greater marginalization of the Christian. We need these words. To you will not endure without the word of God. 
reminding you of the glory of Christ. And that's what he's really telling Timothy. In fact, he says, notice at the end in verse 17, he says that all scripture is God breathed. And it's not just God breathed, but it's profitable. It will help you endure. It will serve you both in doctrine and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. So think about it. It's going to help us in doctrine. You can't know the mind of God apart from scripture. It's profitable for us to form our understanding of God and judgment, salvation, the Holy Spirit. How will we know? People say, well, you know, Tom, I gave up on the church and I go into the woods and I just reflect on God in the woods. Well, they'll probably end up being pantheists for all I know. You can't know the glory and the unique mercy of God through nature. There is revelation given in nature, but it's a revelation that leaves you without excuse, Paul says in Romans chapter 1. But it doesn't introduce you to the beauty of God's kindness in giving a son. We need the scriptures to understand the mind, the heart, and the unique mercy of God and his salvation in Christ. But we also need the scriptures uh, for reproof, right? That word reproof means exposing falsehood, whether in doctrine or whether in your life. Uh, that the, the scriptures don't just reveal heresy to us, but the scriptures also reveal the heresy in our own souls, right? In Hebrews 4, 16, the word of God is sharper and active than a two-edged sword. And you know what it does? It divides and separates thoughts and intentions. It brings conviction to not just our actions, but our motivations. It reproves us. Now, some of us in this day and age don't like reproof, right? We live in a very empathetic culture, a very self-esteem-driven culture. And to be challenged uh, makes us feel unsafe. This is to be a judgment-free zone. You ought to accept me as I am. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible is seeking to remove the disparity between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. And that comes through pastoral rebuke. It's, it's a good thing to be reminded of these are destructive ways. They will not lead to your enduring and flourishing. And with the reproof, the other side is the correction. Correction is just getting you back on the straight. It means literally to straighten out a broken finger. So it's straight again. That's what correction does. And it trains you for righteousness. It equips you to think like God thinks in justice and mercy. And, and the prophet means that you will be complete, you'll be mature, you will endure, and you'll be ready for every good work. You'll be proficient, you'll be useful in the master's hand. And that's what Paul's telling Timothy. Remember, look back and remember how my life was and follow it. And at the same time, continue in the word, growing in the word, learning the word that you might endure. So friends, do you come to the Bible that way? Do you come to the Bible to see the pages unfold the glory of Christ? Do you long to hear of the Savior who was promised and who has come and who has come to save us? Do you see the scriptures as the very word of God? Friends, many of us have a high view of inspiration, but we deny it by our practice. We don't read it. Or we don't spend time in it. It isn't the Wall Street Journal. It's not the USA Today. It, 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 it can be difficult 
But every scripture you read is declaring something to you about God, and it's calling you to respond to him in a certain way. Revealing to you his son, revealing to you how to live. You know, the Christian life really is like a treadmill. I mean, we're walking, right? Now, if you're walking on a treadmill, and if you decide to stop and talk to your friend, you don't stay where you are. I mean, you're off the treadmill. It's constantly moving, right? So culture, social media, your own, your own tendencies, they're affecting you. And for us to think that we're going to endure and mature apart from God's word bringing, you know, doctrinal correction and rebuke and reproof, it's, it's a fool's errand. It won't, it won't happen. We need it to endure. We have examples of this. Martin Niemöller was a Lutheran pastor in Nazi Germany at the time. He was the one that said when they came for the, the Jews, I didn't say anything because I wasn't a Jew. And when they came for the Catholics, I didn't say anything because I wasn't a Catholic. So when they came for the communists, I didn't say anything because I wasn't a communist. And then when they came for me, there was no one to say anything. Here's what he said about the time that he spent in prison. He said, the Bible. What did this book mean to me during the long and weary years of solitary confinement? And then for the last four years at Dachau cell building, the word of God was simply everything to me. Comfort and strength, guidance and hope, master of my days, companion of my nights, the bread which kept me from starvation, the water of life which refreshed my soul, and even more solitary confinement ceased to be solitary. This is the word of God, friends. For us to endure, we need examples, and we have them, plenty of them right here in this room. So we need to be emulating, learning, following the examples that we see. And we need to continue to grow in the word. This is a vital place of Bible studies, equipping studies, sharing the scriptures with one another. Even as we prayed in the, in the uh, prayer time before the service, um, praying that even in our fellowship, we would be encouraging one another in ways that would build us up in Christ and not simply develop relationships, but relationships that are redemptive. So uh, let me just take a minute now and pray for us as we prepare our hearts for the table. Uh, Father, you have given us a full meal here. And we pray, Father, that even now that as we consider your broken word helping us to endure. Uh, prepare our hearts now for the broken bread helping us to endure. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Friends, let me remind you of the words of institution that the elders will say for you as you come to this table. They say, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So when you hear those words, what is your thought on this table? Like, what are you thinking about? How do you view this table? I'm always trying to orient you to taking the bread and the cup. I want you to see, I want you to consider this table as kind of a meal for the pilgrim, right? I want you to see it as a meal strengthening you on the journey that each one of us, if we are in Christ, is making towards God. This will sustain you. It will bear grace in your life to strengthen you 
I don't think uh, that the bread and the wine have some unique mystical power like a vitamin pill or some five-hour energy drink that's going to affect you. No, it's you coming by faith to the reality that Jesus Christ had his body broken, bearing your sins and your guilt and your shame. There was an actual body broken under the judgment of God for our sins. And when you take the cup, the cup is reminding you that his blood was actually shed to establish a new and better covenant through which we are united with God and his son forever. And so faith is the way we feast on this bread and this cup. This grace, I'm saying, is real. It's tangible. We experience the grace through faith, believing the bread that I'm eating is reminding me of a greater reality that I am forgiven and I've now been made one. We do this table together. You know, in this 1 Corinthians 11, when we come together, he says it five times in this chapter. That this is, a, this is a, a pilgrim meal. It's a family meal. We do this as one. We don't celebrate this alone in our spiritual rooms. No, when we come together, we eat because, because we're pilgrims together. And, and this is a meal that reminds us uh, that Christ now, as we come, is seated Right? It says that he was seated at the right hand of God. You come to a seated Christ. And a seated Christ means it's a finished work. Your sins are forgiven. Your guilt is removed. You are cleansed. Now, we may still have those pangs of guilt and shame over our past. But that's why this is a, a meal for the pilgrim, because you're being reminded he is seated. It is finished. There is no work left to be done. You're not coming with promises that you're going to do better. You're coming repentant, aware of your massive need for his mercy and his massive desire to give it and for us to walk in it. So it's a meal that should feed us even now, no matter what has happened this week, he's seated. It's done. He did it for you. So we can rejoice in that. So let's take a minute and consider Jesus as he is seated. Consider the kindness of God in these moments. The kindness of God to provide one to do this work for us. And to inform us that it is finished and complete. Consider the new abundant life. Examine your lives. And if there are sins that creep up, hold that against a seated Christ that you might rejoice as you take the bread and drink the cup. And I'll pray for us in a moment.